Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Book Shambles. And this week it is the final episode we recorded back at the end of August uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, towards the end of 2018. Obviously, we had a lot of uh, episodes that we released that were kind of time-specific or specials and that sort of thing. So we kind of never got round to putting the last episode out that we recorded in Edinburgh. So... That is what's on the docket this week, and it's a great chat between Robin and comedian and novelist Mark Watson, as well as the writing duo that goes by the name of Ambrose Parry, which is crime writer Christopher Brookmeyer and his wife, medical historian Marissa Haisman. Their new book, The Way of All Flesh, is available now, as is Robin's book, I'm a Joke, and so are you and all of Mark Watson's novels. So we hope you enjoy that. Don't forget to support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles or five-star reviews on iTunes or cosmicshambles.com for lots of blogs and documentaries and all that sort of stuff. Make sure you check that out, share and share far and wide. And one final note just before the episode begins, if you listen to the other episodes we recorded at Edinburgh, uh, you'll know that we had a series of sound problems with the venue that we were in. Most of that has been cleaned up in post, but there are just a couple of little uh, moments throughout this episode where the mic kind of drops out a little bit, but it's nothing that is going to ruin your enjoyment of this great chat between Christopher, Marissa, Mark and Robin. I'll tell the audience this then. Hello. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the final book shambles uh, of the festival. And so we've got three people on. Uh, we have uh, Christopher Brookmeyer. We have Maria Hatesman. Marissa Hatesman, sorry. I knew I'd fuck up. I, do you know what? Twice I said to her, um, can I just double check how your surname's spelt? So that, that I don't Marissa's fuck it up. fucking fine. But it turns out my mind goes, it's quite late in the fringe now. There's not much of this left now, your neurons. And Mark Watson? What's, uh, what's Sam? That's close enough. Like yeah. Sam, yeah. right. Uh, and we're just going to, if you've not been to this before, basically, uh, normally we do these shows in a studio. I do them uh, with my friend Josie Long, who has decided not to come to the Fringe uh, very rudely, uh, merely because she's had a baby that she loves very much and no longer needs the approbation of strangers. So uh, that's why. Uh, and we're going to, it's going to be quite a, 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 a ramshackle discussion today. We've done a few already with Ian Rankin and Neil Gaiman. Um, and I want to, I will start straight off actually with, with, with Christopher and Marissa because you uh, people often say you know when, when people are married you know sometimes you just become one you can become one and you have now in an authorial perspective become one person for uh, a historical novel which is uh, filled with some of the uh, well some of the stranger uh, elements of, uh, of, of the medical world and murder in Edinburgh in uh, the 1840s so we've, we've I'll tell you what, yeah, just share it around. Yeah, just pull it out. And can, just you, can you hear this one already? Yeah. yeah. Um, if you want a mic each, you have to write a book each. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, yeah, it's, it, because, uh, Christopher, you're, you're best known as a crime writer, and, and Marissa, you, you've not uh, written a, a, a book before, have you? You, you were studying no. the, recently, you, you, 
went off and started to, to look at the history of medicine. Yeah, it started with a, a, I decided to take a year off work to do a master's degree in the history of medicine. And it, I basically bored Chris to death with all the stuff that I was uh, reading about until eventually he said, oh, I think there might be a book in this. Uh, but he didn't really have the time to kind of absorb all the historical detail. So we decided to do it together. Um, and, it, well, initially we thought, you know, you say that, oh, we should write a book together. And uh, you think that's never going to happen. And, uh, uh, but it did. Um, and it was remarkably harmonious. There were, it weren't, weren't any fist fights. And we, we say, we put that down to the fact that we both knew that we were bringing different uh, skills to the procedure. He knew that he couldn't do it without me, and I definitely couldn't do it without him. Well, that's, I, 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 um, I'd always wanted to write a historical novel, but I thought, you know, it could take years to research it. And even if it's an area you're interested in, if you're writing a novel set in contemporary Glasgow, you know what everything looks like. You don't have to look up anything. And you, you know, if somebody walks into a room, you just assume that there's lights on. You know, so if you're, but you're writing about the, the 19th century and, and you need to know that you're not making an arse of something. And I thought, I can't afford that time. Cause I've been fairly prolific over my career. And um, Marissa was researching uh, for her dissertation and she was telling me every night about James Young Simpson. Uh, someone who not only was responsible for the discovery of chloroform, but was just the most this remarkable figure who transcended all of Edinburgh society in the, the 19th century. You know, he, he had the, the aristocracy queuing up uh, to, to be treated by him, but would go into right here, he'd go into the, the old town and minister to the poor and often refuse payment. Uh, and I, all these wee, there was all these little stories she was telling me, and I thought, this, this stuff just sounds like gold. So how about... Uh, you research a book for me for three years <laughs> and, and I promise I'll, I'll help you write it. Well, I wondered how there's quite a few authors that I know who say that when they do their first draft, the person who actually then deals with saying, I'm afraid some of this is bullshit, is their partner. Very often, uh, certainly in a few of the crime writers I know, so, you know, they finish the first draft and then they pass it over to their husband and wife and say, can you have a look over that? And then they get the, you know, all the crusting down. Has that relationship existed before, uh, for you, before you actually started properly writing together? Uh, I think... Certainly in the very early days of Chris's career, we used, we used to talk about books a lot and we used to discuss uh, plot points and um, there was a lot of discussion in pubs as far as I remember. And then uh, we had a baby and that all came to a grinding halt and Chris kind of went off and did stuff on his own for a while. So historically, yes, I was a little bit involved and I, I, I am always your first reader. Yeah. 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 And, and in, in fact, um, my, my first published novel Quite Ugly One Morning um, that the plot for that was thought up by Barissa uh, because she was working at um, the Royal Infirmary at the time and there was the, the, the dawn of the NHS trusts and there was all sorts of horrendous practices starting to creep in or, or obvious conflicts of interest between the, the, the uh, tr trying to create an internal market in the NHS and uh, Marissa came up with uh, the really macabre plot for that in a pub um, over in, um, I think it was, it was over in the, the, the new town, actually. But uh, then we, we, I would be writing, uh, my natural ethos as a writer is to see where the story takes me and then get really lost and hope I can dig myself out. And when I couldn't dig myself out, we would go to the pub 
uh, and sit down and I would outline the story. There's a lot of going to the pub in this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I remember the, we were, I was writing a novel called uh, One Fine Day in the Middle of the Night and it's got multiple strands going on and it was all over the place. And we went, went to the pub for several hours and we drew on a, a bit of paper, little fizzing bombs drawn and different characters' names and arrows everywhere. Uh, and by the end of that, I, had, I knew how I was going to finish the novel. In fact, we stood up, lifted the bit of paper, and it, we were at table number 42. We thought, ah, the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so what, I, I apologise for that you're going to get asked this so many times, but in terms of the actual process between the, the, the two of you, in terms of, of the writing page, I, I certainly know, you know in, in, in comedy writing, very often you hear that people will just, one person writes the first draft of the sitcom and then sends it, and they do it vice versa like that. In terms of this chapter by chapter, how did you work together in, in creating the book? It, I think... We didn't really have a, a strict plan. I think initially we thought I would do the research and Chris would write it. And then Chris was busy writing his own crime novels and I got fed up waiting and started outlining the plot and wrote quite a lot of stuff. But what I ended up with was a kind of mismatch of, um, you know, some scenes were written, some bits was, was just a bit of historical detail. It was a bit of a mess. So... Between the two of us, we had to sit down and kind of um, sort it out. And then once we got a better idea of, of what the story was, um, Chris kind of, I always thought of him as like a director in that he would say, these are the scenes that we need. And then we would divide up the writing tasks and then swap over and kind of rewrite each other's. Yeah, there was a lot of that back and forth in that um, I would, uh, we'd, we'd worked out roughly where the story was going and what, what chapters needed uh, to say. Uh, but there's primarily two points of view in the novel. There's, there's the character of Will Raven, who's an apprentice to James Young Simpson. And he, he's, he's quite a rough and ready character. The first time we meet him is in, in a, a pub just like this one. In fact, the first time we meet him is on the, the Cannon Gate, uh, about to get attacked um, because he, he's, he's on the run from moneylenders. But... The other perspective is uh, from a housemaid, uh, Sarah Fisher, and Sarah is uh, someone who's very intelligent and very driven, but hugely frustrated by the lack of opportunities available to, to a, a young woman at that time. Uh, and Marissa created the character of Sarah and, and wrote almost all the, the chapters from Sarah's point of view. And I, she'd created Raven, uh, but I, I kind of made him much darker and nastier, as <laughs> is, is my tendency. But most of those chapters that were Raven is, is dealing with medical things. Marissa wrote all the medical scenes and I, I just adapted them to uh, the, the burgeoning plot. And so that's why I, I'm the one with the reputation for writing really sort of stomach-churningly gory and, and scatological things. But Marissa wrote all of the medical scenes in, in this novel and some of them have had readers tell us they've been reading through their fingers. Oh, there, I mean, there's a, do, you, do you know Lindsay Fitzharris's book, The, uh, the Butchering Art? Which is, it's a non-fiction book, we've interviewed her on, uh, on Bookshamers before actually, where, and it is all about basically the invention of uh, anaesthetic and, uh, and also then mainly antiseptic and all of these, and it is, it's, it's non-fiction, but she loved the first hundred pages is, then he realised that the, uh, the neck cavity was gaping, and as the pus poured out, the surgeon actually leaned over, his mouth fully open, and sucked it out and spat it in a bucket, and you just go, ah! and, and, but the thing is also, she 
loved she had to do it because it explains why it was so important to actually have the development of antiseptic and all these things but at the same time you can sense that at page 100 she goes oh now I've just got to go through the boring bit where everything got better and wasn't as pussy um, it's an amazing book I highly recommend it um Mark, I'm sorry to go straight from pus to you, but the, uh, I, it happens all the time, Robin. But you, you know, you write on your own, and again, I'm interested in in terms of your novel writing. You were pretty. I mean, how old were you when you wrote your 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 first novel? Uh, like 20, 23 or twenty four. Too young, really. Younger than um, like the novel would have been better if I sort of hung on in there uh, a bit. And I, I am really fascinated by this because um, not only have I never written a book with anybody else, but I am quite kind of secretive about my own writing process. I don't like seeing, I don't like to show it to anyone um, when it's a work in progress. Even I, my girlfriend is normally my first reader, but I, I have to have it in a pretty polished state um, even to let anyone get anywhere near it, really. I never send anything to an editor. And some writers will um, send stuff that's half finished to an editor and say, what do you think? Is this? But I, I don't even like doing that. I... I um, so I'm really intrigued by the idea that you could have a, a relationship that's workable enough. Because uh, you, you're so vulnerable when you're working on something, I think. A, a, a piece of writing that's half done is quite a... Uh, you're pretty sensitive about it. I can't quite imagine being in a situation where you could um, harmoniously write a book as a collaboration. And generally, I'm just not a collaborative person. I, I, I like to sort of shut myself away with a project. Um, I'm really interested in the idea of building something together like that. We, uh, we we are almost never in the same room physically writing, you know. That and I, I don't like having any any presence around me when I'm writing. Yeah. I think is the same. But um, I um, was talking to I won't name them, but the, to to writer friends of mine who've been living together for twenty odd years. They would on the surface what seems to be a very very harmonious relationship, but they were talking about the one time they'd written a play together. Um, and they'd, I think they'd tried it with him, and one of them was saying about how it had gone. So it was, it was starting to get a wee bit tense, and and somebody called somebody an arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, I, I wasn't sure if she was saying this uh, in a kind of confessional manner, you know, and by way of contrition. Uh, but it became clear that no, there was an element of jacuzzi. Uh, that it was it was her her partner who had called her an arsehole. Uh, but they, they chose never to write in the same room again. I think they chose never to collaborate again as well. Well, that, I, I wonder, though, with you, Mark, then, at what point... Because I know it's a very different kind of thing. You know, Charles Darwin, with On the Origin of Species, for decade after decade, he just won't release it. He keeps changing it. I mean, that part of... And, and, I'm and, always know, getting so, compared to Darwin. So I find it quite tiresome. Like, come on, I, guys. I think through mutation, heredity and natural selection, we've seen an incredible change in your novels. And yeah. I, I just... But I, I, I wonder whether... There is a point where you go, I've got to let it out now. I can't... Or, or whether you feel that instinctually there is a point where you go, there is something now that is full enough and in your own mind complete enough that someone else can now cast an eye on it. Yeah, I think that, I think the reason that I don't like to show things early on is that I like to feel like I know exactly what uh, what it is and what I'm doing before I let someone else in. The, like if you show someone... I know writers who will... I don't actually know that many writers because it's not my main job. But when I do meet other writers, quite a lot of them have a relationship with their editor where they, um, they'll just send them 20,000 words or like half a novel and say, do you think this is going to work out? But my fear with doing that was that it would be that the editor would say, like, basically, I don't like having feedback unless I'm 100% confident that I know it myself what I think. If I showed half a novel to someone and they said, what about this, this and this, I'd think... Oh, yeah, but hang on, that's, is, that, is that my... I'd, I'd much rather... Everyone's different, I think, uh, writing-wise, and my 
favoured route is to just write a load of stuff, even if it's shit, uh, and then gradually pare it back. So I'd much rather send even quite a ropey but finished thing than invite feedback halfway through. Whereas other, other writers seem to like to have the germ of an idea and then basically say to the editor, mm, what do I do now? Um, but then it also depends on whether you like to write to a plan or not. I, I'm quite a planner. I like to uh, write... I mean, I, there's always got to be room for changing your mind, but I, I like to have kind of a, a roadmap for a book. And I'm always really interested by writers like, say, Christopher says it sort of gets lost in the novel and then tries to dig himself out. Because I've heard a lot of writers say that. I did a um, book event with um, Roddy Doyle, and who's a hugely respected author, and he said he basically just starts with a character in a situation and has no idea, like, that's it. His first chapter is all he's got, and then he just sees what happens. And I'm pretty sure if I wrote like that, it would be a fucking car crash. (laughs) I'd get a year in and think, this makes no sense. But for some writers, that... They, they push through that, this makes no sense. And, and the, the, the process of writing a novel is the journey back from this makes no sense to this does make sense. And I'm always really interested in that. I don't think I've quite got the uh, courage or the confidence in my process to uh, deliberately lose myself in the book and then find it. But I've heard lots of people say stuff like that. Well, we, we've had uh, a kind of clash of two styles in that respect because I'm coming to it from the perspective of a writer and Rissa's coming to it from the perspective of an anaesthetist who really can't wing it in, in her job. You know? No, you've <laughs> got to know what you're doing with that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you immediately turn to other anaesthetists and say, do you think this is approximately yeah. the right mix? <laughs> uh, or do you just try and do it all yourself, all the way out? If you've got an anaesthetist working on you, you don't want to see much improv, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's the rough drafts in the bin, yeah. The, uh, I, I found it with the, the, the book that I've most recently uh, uh, attempted to write, where, when I sent the editor the first 200,000 words of the 120,000 word <laughs> book, they just said, I think we need another editor. And it felt like that moment in Jaws going, we need a bigger boat. But what the fuck does any of this mean? That's the most Robin Inns anecdote I could think <laughs> yeah. of. Here's 200,000 words. Good luck, see you in five years. <laughs> yeah. There's some sentences in there. I don't know where they are. Some verbs may well be fictional. <laughs> but, but, it was... It was um, Really helpful uh, learning process because of the the fact that you when you when you um, have the idea in your head um, and you you think it makes more sense than it does until you have to explain it to someone else and I would do this and explain where I was taking the story and Marissa would just stare at me with this what we started to refer to as the face (laughs) um, which was kind of would would engender a level of self doubt you could not believe and I just realised there was so many stages that I'd skipped you know that mentally I thought they were all filled in all these blanks and they weren't uh, I learned a lot from that yeah but as a writer you sort of internally need to have the face basically <laughs> but if you can actually have a person that has the face it's even better I've got to ask this is a nerd question but how did you come up with the name Ambrose Parry as the author uh Robin probably would have asked you at some point but uh I'm just fascinated by that uh, well we d- decided early on that we would need to have a pseudonym of some description. Chris already writes uh, a whole selection of stuff, crime, science fiction, a bit of horror, and we thought his uh, publisher would probably have a nervous breakdown if he decided to do historical fiction under his own name as well. Uh, Plus, that he didn't do it all by himself, so (laughs) we decided a pseudonym would be appropriate. And we realised that kind of pushing our names together wouldn't come up with anything very sensible. 
Uh, it's not a Brangelina situation. No, no, we didn't, we didn't think that would work. Uh, so given that it's a book about uh, medical history, Ambrose Parry uh, was actually a French military surgeon in the 16th century. And he, his name was mentioned in the first tutorial I ever attended in my history of medicine course. And we liked the name and we thought it seemed appropriate. I mean, that's exactly the nerd level I was hoping for. <laughs> <from Isaac. laughs> Mark, I wanted to ask you about the difference in terms of uh, writing, you know, your, uh, the creative process of stand-up versus, I mean, are you methodical? I, I've seen you, of course, very often. You did the, the Barry Crimmins benefit the other night and you did a fantastic 10 minutes that was very much off the top of your head about you having, have having to follow, no. yeah, having to follow uh, Amanda Palmer and, uh, and continually saying that she'd been in the New York Dolls, which I, I particularly liked. And I mean, I was really drunk, by the way. Yeah I, I, yeah, I wasn't certain if you were deliberately confusing the New York Dolls with the Dresden Dolls, but either way, it was seen very much as a wonderful moment of the avant-garde. My brain was just like, um, if you say dolls that'll do the business but yeah so I've seen you a lot of times do very improvisationary things but when you're actually in the process of writing something like the the show that you're currently doing in Edinburgh that you'll be touring is that methodical in a way to some extent in the way that you write novels as well it's really not no I never um I never commit anything uh stand-up wise to, to paper at all basically um I mean as you say, partly that's because I, I, more and more as I go on, I try and make as much of the show as possible um, off the cuff. It's not worth my while writing down 15 minutes of material about uh, following Amanda Palmer because uh, I haven't often had that situation occur. And uh, <laughs> most of my, if I'd been doing that material for 2,000 gigs in my career so far, I'd be starting to worry now. Um, but uh, basically, so with the stand-up show like the one I'm doing here, I, or I t- I, the, it only ever exists as a series of bullet points, and even then, quite loose uh, bullet points. I'm, I, it always interests me because there are comedians who we both know who, who do. Well, you probably, I don't know. Like, there are comedians who write a script for a stand-up show, and they might go away from it, but the, the, still, the, the the show exists as an actual body of work. A literary. I, I've never um, seen right because the way I construct a stand-up show is not to sit and um, try and write jokes. I just do work in progress shows. I just I mm. do half an hour. And maybe five minutes of that isn't shit. So you keep that. And then I keep doing that. And you basically, so I just graft a stand-up show together um, from loads and loads of gigs, which means that it, there's never really a time when they actually... And that's not necessarily typical. A lot of comedians, certainly for the fringe, do sit down and think, I'm going to write it uh, as a piece. But I've never found much success doing that. Most of my good jokes come from just doing loads of time on stage until stuff funny stuff yeah I tried that last year last year I didn't have enough previews so one of the shows that I was doing up here I actually for the first time ever thought I'll try and write it out as some form of script I've got it in my head already so it wasn't like I was right and uh, I got rid of nearly all of it by the end of the run because it it, it didn't feel that bit of standing there and and, and this year I think if I'd done twice as many previews I wouldn't have wasted half as much time as I have uh, for some of the audience Uh, (laughs) someone's going sorry about that I only did three gigs in Peterborough and uh, frankly that's an ill-formed idea but I think especially with your sort of stuff as well I've done previews with you before and it, it's material which I know will work in Edinburgh but if you're in somewhere like in Lincolnshire and Robin says now nah, 20 minutes on Nietzsche you yeah. can see people thinking <laughs> I, I'm my bit about Kafka's collection of pornography is going okay now, but I think it's only because I've got an illustration of the image he had of a six-breasted woman feeding three fawns, and I think that really carries it along, fortunately. But again, harder to sell that in Maze, don't yeah, I think? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, well, whereas, that was, there was a lovely thinking of people trying out their gigs. Um, Daniel Kitson, when he was out, we were doing a, you might have done it, the Crap Comedy Festival in Oslo. In Norway, yeah. yeah I have not it's fantastic. Heard about it, yeah. Uh, and, and they just call it the Crap Comedy Festival. It's the kind of, it's by a group of, uh, I would say, really alternative Norwegian comics who are very funny. And uh, they are, their troupe is called the Norwegians of Comedy. And, uh, and Daniel Kitson went over and did the very first, like, I've got some ideas, I've never said them aloud before. And the first afternoon he did it, you know, it, of course it was interesting, but I don't think it quite caught as much fire as he'd have hoped. And later on, he was walking through uh, a corridor on the way to see Josie and me, and this man just stopped him and he just said, oh, I saw you this afternoon, not so good. And... <laughs> Daniel Kitson burst out laughing, and the man th- and he looks at him again and goes, no, not so good. <laughs> Very Norwegian kind of, really just trying to help really here. <laughs> Mark, going back to the cathartic, I, I was again interested in what you, your, your stand-up, of course for, for many people stand-up is, is autobiographical, but a lot of what you have talked about in the last few years is uh, very much about your life and experience. Is there again something where the difference where... Are there limitations of what you can share with an audience when it is very much you expressing it? And is there something you can sometimes find when you're writing a novel where you are able, and sometimes even in hindsight, go, oh, now looking at this novel, I realise what was going on and what I was actually expressing? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Because stand-up is quite a... Well, you're limited just by the amount of time you spend with an audience. (coughs) Excuse me. so the Edinburgh format is an hour, um, and then when I go on tour, the show extends to maybe 90 minutes, but that's still not very long to gain the trust of an audience and go deeply into subjects. So um, in the, yeah, the past three shows, uh, which are 2014, 16, and uh, this year, I've talked quite a lot about um, uh, getting divorced, uh, drinking, just uh, darker subjects, but... Even so, what, what passes for um, dark treatment of a subject in a stand-up show is still, still fairly superficial. It's still only 10, 15 minutes with an audience because you've got to make them laugh, and rightly so. That's what people rightly expect. Um, with a novel, you, you do have the ability to uh, dive a lot deeper into a subject. And I think that's it's why I write novels, I, I think, and I'm surprised that more comedians don't. There are a lot of comedians who um, approach very interesting territory in a fringe show and explore it really interestingly, but it still is only an hour, and there is still that pressure to, to still be funny. Um, and what I love about a novel is that you, you do not, you're not connecting uh, minute by minute with the audience. If you're doing a stand-up show, even if you're someone like... Um, you, there are comics like Reg Hunter, as an example, who can go five, ten minutes without a single laugh because uh, they have the audience held and they are making a point. But, but for most people like me... We were raised to believe that if you go more than 30 seconds in silence, you're in enormous trouble, and then you just sort of get a dick out or something. Um, and if you I were, forget um, your old act. So, yeah, I... Maybe very head nights, wasn't I've it? I've had yes. to stop doing that now. Uh, yeah, just... I was, I was advised to modernise the act after the Me Too thing. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, you are kind of... As a comedian, you are um, conditioned to think... Uh, there has to be a laugh every uh, so often. With a novel, you, of course, you're not seeing the audience react to it, and so you do have the luxury of trying to expand on ideas. In it. Um, of course, in a way, the things aren't as different as you think, because still, if you're writing a novel, uh, if it's boring, someone could put it down, they can pick up another book. They, so there is still that same... There's no form of um, expression where you 
don't have a pressure to entertain because uh, if you're watching a TV show, reading a novel, listening to an opera, whatever it is, you're only five minutes away from saying, oh, I'll do something else. So it's not as if writing a book allows you to... Um, it gives you more of a license to be boring, but you, you definitely do get to go far deeper into things. Like, for example, um, and certainly in terms of uh, the way that you understand the book in hindsight more. I wrote a book called The, the Knot, which is about um, a wedding photographer uh, who had his own kind of relationship overshadowed by various things. And it's, the book was all about the fact that I was... Uh, not very happy in my marriage, but I didn't know at the time. I, I wrote it three years before I got divorced, and um, it's only after I look. These days, people read the book and say, "Wow, what did your wife think about that?" Um, and she took a quite a dim view of it. Is the answer? Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, That's history with a test. Yeah, because <laughs> the, the book is about someone trying to explore the potential of different relationships and doing stuff outside their marriage and stuff like that but I was not living like that I was just writing about it it would have been much healthier if I just uh, done it um, so that's the most extreme example but there have been two or three novels I've written that expressed specific desires or th things that I was interested in at the time but which I was not addressing at all in my actual life I'm definitely much better at writing a novel about doing something risky than doing the thing. <laughs> we had the, the, the weird kind of reverse of that. Uh, last year, Ed Byrne, in his French show here, at the end of the show, had a, a whole routine, effectively, about our marriage. Um, <laughs> because um, it, he, he was doing a, a, a riff on the fact that my, my novels had this recurring characters of Jack Parlebane and Sarah Slaughter, and that Jack Parlebane was a journalist, and I used to be a journalist and he was married to a, an anaesthetist. And it was, was tracking the ways in which this had evolved, but then saw in the later novels that the relationship starts to fall apart, and then they got divorced, and was saying that exact thing, that, you know, this must have been an uncomfortable read-through for Marissa, you know, re reading about the, the, the character getting divorced. Um, but he, Ed phoned me up uh, in advance of doing this to say, I'm working on this thing. Uh, and... Essentially, he was kind of saying and politely asking for permission to do it. But mainly, he confessed he was just checking that it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> because that would be a wee bit more awkward if one of us were to rock up to the show, you know. I wondered what Ian Rankin last week was talking about. Uh, I forget the name of, 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 of the crime writer. In fact, she's no longer alive. Canadian crime writer who had a relationship with a football player uh, who then uh, spurned her. And uh, she wrote to lots of other crime writers and said, um, can you place him somewhere in your book, right? And Amazing. apparently about two years later, the books start arriving in her house. And I think Ian, was it, was it that Ian uh, had uh, the character, he was an impotent gorilla in Edinburgh Zoo or similar like so when you're <laughs> in so many books this character they're the same name and apparently when all the books were published she got them all together and literally put them in a box with a ribbon and sent it to him so all of these books in which he was brutally murdered or, or was or was depicted as a an animal or a paedophile or whatever never cross a writer yeah <laughs> But do you ever, find, I mean, when, you, when you're writing, if, if, are there times when you can look at, and I'll ask for all three of you, times where you realise, ah, my mood or my anger or whatever has been as overcast actually the way I should have been writing, or are there other times where you go, do you know what, I saw the face of the person that I have horribly murdered, and it shouldn't have been, but it was Tony, he's really fucked me off today. You know, that kind of... It's really valuable to have someone read it through because there's times I've written things and Marissa has said, this comes across as too bitter. 
you know, she can tell I'm, I'm channeling some kind of specific grudge. Uh, and and you, when someone tells you that, you know, part of you is resistant, but then you read it through again, you think, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not about what it should be. It's purely about my own emotions, and those emotions are transient. You know, they're, they're not enduring. I've well, definitely, I've got a tendency to use certain names over and over again as bad characters as well. Like um, there was a guy at school called Ian who used to bully me. And this is more than 25 years ago, but still, if I'm writing a character that's a prick, my go-to is always Ian. And um, <laughs> so, again, that's why it's useful to have a reader, because a reader will say to you, do you need, like, this is the seventh consecutive person called Ian in one of your novels. Are there other names you could use? I've got, I find it odd. I, like, I always use characters, um, names for characters that you're meant to like, like the central character, the, narr the narrator, or so. I tend to always use names that I myself like because I would find it weirdly difficult to sell that character as an idea if I didn't like the name. So in that book, The Knot, I used the character Dominic because I like the name Dominic, but my wife at the time didn't like it, so I couldn't call a child that, so I just put in book instead. Um, where it, and his brother in the book is a bit of a dick, and I called him Max because I've never trusted people called Max. And um, these are very specific prejudices, normally based on either school bullies or like other people you've met. And, uh, but it's... it's like, for people like us, and I'm, Chris was probably not that different, it's a very, very passive-aggressive form of revenge, basically. <laughs> if someone wrongs me now, I think, I'm not going to say anything because I'm not that sort of person, but in 25 years, you will be a mean accountant in a novel. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. John Ronson was talking about bullying uh, on, on a podcast recently, and it's that strange, just because you brought that up, and in a show that I did last year, I kind of brought up some of that issue, and, and someone went, oh, why are you still going on about it? And you go, well, actually, it, it doesn't mean anything now, except there's that strange thing that those things that can happen in school, as John was saying, was it was just a year of bullying, and it... You know, now it's all gone, but it's at a point where your brain is developing yeah. and your social brain. And then sometimes you meet these people who were the most repellent individuals in the playground and they've forgotten about it and everything's fine. Yeah, they're fine. And yet, for someone, like, as John was saying, he still feels, you know, all, all of that has happened. So if you're lucky, those sort of playground bullying episodes have no long-term implications, except that you... The, I always think the first person you meet with a particular name, will, that name will always evoke... Uh, that person. So if I meet someone called Ian, I will instinctively think of this dick at school called Ian. So then they've got quite a bit of work to do to, for, for me to think, oh, you're a, you're a nice Ian. I didn't think that was a thing. Um, whereas my first girlfriend, it was called Claire, and I still, I'm still in touch with her. I'm still very fond of her. So if someone's called Claire, I give them far more credit than they deserve. And like, these things are not based on anything apart from, but as you say, at that age, 10 or 11 or whatever you are, very, you're making associations very quickly, and it's surprising how long those knock about, I think, in your brain. Claire is trustworthy, isn't it? I mean, I've it's a when very you're, solid name. About, yeah. Yeah. I think it's Gilbert O'Sullivan that helped create that, but it is it's something about Claire where... Do you find where sometimes when you... I mean, I suppose it's been different writing to get because you were writing, you know, a lot of the characters are real people in, mm. in, in, in the book, but is there a moment when you are creating characters and you go, oh, no, that name does not suggest what is required? Do you actually find yourself getting into a kind of nominative determinism? That is true. Sometimes you think the name you've given just doesn't evoke sometimes a certain emotion. But Marissa's always very protective of the real characters. You know, there's for dramatic reasons I had to make certain characters seem less trustworthy or less admirable. A lot of arguing because she's a bit, but there's no evidence that this actually happened, you know. And I say, well, yeah, but there's also there's no evidence that it didn't. <laughs> uh, and and that, that, that whole area is our playground, you know, in terms of writing fiction. Do you find, Marissa, having to, you're spending a year studying history medicine and now having 
it seems that you know you've completed the book together and everything has gone very well and and there is a level of satisfaction not merely in creating the novel but also in the fact that you are now someone who it was historically important the people are going to read and they're going to find out more about them do you now already have the the the, the second volume of uh when you two become ambrose parry again uh, yes <laughs> uh, i think because we we decided to set the, the book in 1847, so it covers the period of roughly a year. Uh, we really only have t touched on a much greater story, and there's so many more. There's so much more to say, isn't there? Um, and so we, I think we had always thought, uh, with a fair wind, we might get the chance to write more. Uh, and uh, there seems to be enough interest, so I've got the, sec the second book more or less plotted out. So much material. There's the, um, I mean, just a few years later, you've got antisepsis starting to, you know, the discovery of that, and and so Lister, um, now always has the correct uh, hist history for this, but what was the connection to Lister and Simpson or something? Was it Simpson? Uh, Syme, who was uh, Simpson's great adversary, um, his son-in-law was Joseph Lister, who started off his career in Edinburgh. I realise that Glasgow always claimed him, but he started in Edinburgh. And so there, there's room for antiseptics in the, not the next book, but probably the one after. Yeah. And, and we, we also had this notion that um, because Sarah is someone who she's interested in initially, uh, the relationship between the, the sort of herbs in the garden and, and their healing properties and, and the, the chemistry that, that emerges from that at that, that time. So we've got Christensen, as he's mentioned in the book, but we thought that there's... Years later, you've got the Edinburgh Seven, the first women to, to fight to be included and to be allowed to, to study medicine at Edinburgh University. So we thought we'll potentially um, take the story or keep developing the, the story until we reach that particular milestone. Although I'm really interested in the discussion about using names to kind of settle old scores, because if we're going to keep doing this, I've got a list. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what's your next uh, book project? Um, well, I don't really know. I, mean, I am writing a book at the moment, um, but I've been talking to people about doing it as an audio, like actually publishing it as an audio book, which I've never done before. Um, but for somebody like me, the market, uh, the print market is difficult at the moment. I'm not particularly, uh, I'm not a kind of high-end literary novelist, but also not really commercial enough to being kind of like Tesco's or something like that. So I fall into this quite big middle bracket of authors that uh, no one reads the books of. <laughs> and um, one way I've thought about uh, getting around that problem is, is doing a number of authors and now starting to publish things like straight to audio. And obviously as a performer, that interests me because um, there might be a way I could write a book that was specifically performed by me. And I, I, so I'm thinking, I'm toying with those sort of ideas at the moment. I've got two separate um, books that I'm... Uh, working on what well, ideas I'm working on, but for the first time ever, I've, I've started thinking maybe is there another way? I'm a real traditionalist as well. I love books. I love the printed book, um, but I'm also pragmatic about the fact that it, it, I might be better off looking at different ways of publishing. Just because it is hard to reach an audience, and it's I'm in a weird situation where as a stand-up I can sell quite a lot of tickets and I can tour and things, um, and if I sell books, which I do after the show, we sell we always sell some. But um, deep down, I know that if I sold just a link to an audible thing or something, I, almost certainly more people would do that. So I'm at a stage in my career where I'm basically questioning. Somebody, 
in answer to your question, my next book project is to renounce the idea of books. But, um, <laughs> but not voluntarily. I'm just starting to think it might be an interesting way to look. I'm always looking into how I can evolve and how I can um, meet what the audience wants. But it, in a way, the process for me is not that different. I'm still looking to write books, and I always will be, I think. So how do you, at the end, of, so you sign an audible book just by shouting that person's name at the beginning of the recording? Yeah, that's that's right, yeah. Kind of, or you go to the house and just watch them while they read <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, on something non-bookish, just, we, we come to the end, but I want to just, because we were talking about it when the audience came in, something that I like about Edinburgh a great deal is I find that many of the cab drivers are intellectually flamboyant, and I wondered if you, because I was just saying last night at about one in the morning I got a cab, and uh, the cab driver asked me what I was doing, I said a couple of things, and he then gave me uh, a 15-minute lecture on uh, the erotically charged nature of different interpretations of the Burke and Hare story, the sectarian politics involved in it, and then moved on to the 1970s uh, exploitation films, Ilsa, She Warden of the SS, and others. And I just find, and I've had a conversation once with a cab driver about the work of Robert Maplethorpe. You know, again, you don't necessarily expect, so I just wondered how you feel about Wait, that. I was... Myself and the, my fellow crime writer, Luca Vesti, we were picked up at like 7.45 this morning to go to the, the BBC. And uh, our cab driver just, he barely drew breath. And um, he and, and he did he did warn us after a while. He said, oh, you've got me. He told us that there was, there was um, uh, when his name appears on certain people's phones, that that's the cab driver, they promptly cancel the cab. <laughs> but he... he he was. Uh, he confessed that there was some occasion. It was on Christmas Day. He got some fair where they wanted some kind of tour down through sort of uh, Tweeddale and into the borders. And he was telling them all about the, the history of the various churches. And eventually, a woman sort of leaned forward and tapped the, the glass and said, "Do you ever shut the fuck up?" <laughs> but but he told us we were driving past, um, and he was saying how the, the one of the, the world's oldest golf course was, was once on, on the meadows, and it was built uh, privately by uh, Mary Queen of Scots, who was a really keen golfer, and that she had these French guards. And that she needed, she had to have a guard uh, helping her around because she was there was threat of assassination, and the French guards who were helping her play golf were cadets, and so it was pronounced cadet, and that is where the term caddy came from. Sounds like being in a car with Mark Steele, doesn't it? You know, it's like that <laughs> and another of, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, thank you very much for coming down. Uh, this will be out soon as a podcast. Uh, Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. No, Josie, but uh, she still hangs over us. Thank you for listening to Book Shambles. Thank you to Christopher, Marissa and Mark, and hope to see you again. Bye-bye. Oh, when's your book? I presume your book thing's sold out. But when, no, when? no, it's on Sunday. Sunday! Oh, the, oh yeah, the we book, didn't even the book. start recording. We forgot to mention the title of the like book. Like the fucking book, at least. <laughs> the book is called The Way of All Flesh, and we're, we're launching it on Sunday at 5 o'clock at the Edinburgh Book Festival, and the book's out next week. I mean, the book's been out for a while now, but I guess that is still uh, technically correct. The book is available next week. It's out next week. It's out the week after that and many weeks previous. So that's The Way of All Flesh by Ambrose Parry. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for supporting the show by listening, by rating it on various podcast rating websites, by financially supporting us if you do at patreon.com slash bookshambles. Thank you one and all. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We hope you have a great week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.